Good morning. Today's reading is from Genesis, chapter 42, 1 to 38. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for fear that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be, t- be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to place every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. 
As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this shall I know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, that I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's money bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kathy. Well, we're reaching the climax of this story. In chapters 42 to 45, we're reaching kind of the pinnacle, the climax of, of the Joseph cycle. Remember, Joseph and his family, they were a broken bunch. Simeon and Levi, as a quick recap, do you remember? Sons number two and three were guilty of genocide after the assault on their sister in Genesis 34. The oldest son, Reuben, who at the end says, hey, kill my two sons if I don't bring Simeon back. He had slept with his father, Jacob's concubine, to attempt to kind of overthrow the family. Judah, son number four, impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who had disguised herself as a prostitute. Broken family? Yes. And remember our current story. Ten of these brothers had taken Joseph, beat him to a pulp, basically left him for dead by the side of the road, but they'd taken him and they put him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. And listen to his cries, as our, as our chapter says today, from the pit they had thrown him in, callous and ruthless, broken family. And now comes the time for a reckoning with the guilt of the ten brothers. Sounds kind of like an Old West shootout is coming, right? <laughs> But not really. It's far from that. Joseph actually doesn't want revenge or a shootout with his brothers. He actually, he, and actually he doesn't even want to be known right away. Excuse me, as you see in the text, he doesn't even want to be known right away. In this first of these two encounters, Joseph is seen now, 
testing his brothers, testing them without revealing his identity and immediately forgiving them. Why, why not just reveal right away? They walk in, they, they recognize him, or he, they, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him. And, it's me, I forgive you, I forgive you. Why not just do it right away? I mean, isn't it cruel for him to keep his identity secret? Maybe he does want revenge. No, Joseph wanted more. Joseph wanted even more than just reconciliation and forgiveness. He wanted the transformation of his family. That's what he's after today. And that's going to come at a, at a greater expense to everyone involved in the story. But that's actually what God is after. And that's what God is doing in the story. And it's actually a greater display of love than if he just would have said, eh, forgive and forget, let it go. This is what God wanted. So this morning, here's what we're going to see. Three ways God is at work in moving this family towards reconciliation and transformation. And in, in, in so doing, we're going to see how God uses his fatherly hand of discipline now. Discipline in our own lives as well. How does he use discipline in your life? And what is it? And why does it come sometimes to us? And is it for our good? So we're going to look at today. So let's start here. What's happening? Here's the first way God is moving in this story. God is becoming to this family the father they never had by using a discipline that would transform them, change them. Well, as the story begins today, remember, as we just highlighted, this family is a broken mess. A broken mess. And the author, Moses, gives us a hint that some pretty messed up dynamics are still at play in this family. So the famine comes, the one that Joseph had uh, prophesied in dreams through God, the dreams that God gave him, and the famine comes, and they're now in year two of this seven-year famine, and they're beginning probably to run out of food, or at least get close enough, short enough on food that, that Jacob intervenes. And, and what were the brothers doing? I don't know. Twiddling their thumbs, playing video games, <laughs> scrolling Instagram. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but whatever they were doing, Jacob looks at them and just says, like, why are you just standing there looking at each other? You just standing there looking at each other. What are you doing? Meaning, guys, take some action and provide for our family. Get with it. Turn off the Nintendo and get out, get out there. <laughs> and so... He sends the sons, but not Benjamin. Remember, we're highlighting these ongoing broken family dynamics. First, the brothers are all just sitting there. Remember, Benjamin was Joseph's brother, one of the two sons of Rachel, his favorite wife. And he says, the ten of you go, but Benjamin's not. See, Jacob didn't truly know what had happened to Joseph. But we're meant to see in the text that his refusal to send Benjamin gives us a sense that he doesn't trust the ten with Benjamin's life. He doesn't know what happened to Joseph, but there's probably some assumption there that these 10 had something to do with it, whatever happened. He didn't trust their character. And rightfully, he should not have, right? Given what had happened to Joseph. But here's what we're meant to see. What's the problem here with these sons and their brokenness? Why are they, why are they the way they are? Well, one of the primary reasons, if you remember the story, going back to the beginning of the Joseph story, it was bad fathering. It was bad parenting on Jacob's part. 
Bad parenting had set these boys up for a life of misery. That was their big problem. Do you remember? Jacob practiced something with these kids that a father never should. He loved one more than the rest. He singled out one as his special son amongst the rest. He had doted on Joseph, lavishing him with praise and with finances and riches as his favorite. He loved one the best. Do you know what kind of fireworks that will set off in a family? We're seeing it. And what did that do to Joseph? Well, that made Joseph kind of an arrogant jerk at the beginning of the story, remember? Pridefully standing up. And then for the other 10 brothers, it made them jealous and angry and just downright nasty. And here is the chosen family of God. This is your best and brightest, God? (laughs) The children of Abraham, that's who this family is. The children of Isaac and now Jacob, their father. And this is the family that's going to save the world? Something had to be done. These men weren't saviors, they're rascals. (laughs) And Jacob's terrible fathering was a primary cause of the brokenness in this family. And so what do we see God doing? He's becoming the father they never had. He's getting ready to send them off into difficult situations that will mold them and shape their character. Remember, he's already done this with Joseph. He's already done this very thing. Well, okay, Joseph, he's this arrogant, spoiled brat as a boy. How is he going to become the the wise and kind man who's able to use the gifts of God to save the world? How's that going to happen? God's discipline. How are these 10 brothers going to become the men they need to be to be the the foundation of the nation Israel, the foundation of God's chosen people through whom was to be the blessing upon the entire world? These 12? How? God becomes the father they never had. Now, to understand this story today, we have to talk a little bit about discipline. I guess fitting on Mother's Day, right? But to talk a little about discipline and, and what it is and, and actually God's fatherly discipline and how that plays into not only this family's life, but your life. And that's hard. Because as we're going to see in Hebrews 12 here, discipline hurts. Discipline is sometimes confusing. And sometimes, at the very least, irritating. Hebrews 12 is a passage on discipline, and it speaks of of good good fatherly discipline. And to understand this story, we have to talk about this idea. Here's what Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 say. "Now, Now, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And actually, all throughout the larger passage of Hebrews 12, it speaks of discipline. It talks about discipline. And when we hear those words in English, a lot of times discipline is as a synonym, synonymous with the word punishment. And in the English word, discipline actually almost carries sometimes that idea of punishment for us. There's not really a great even English word that gets at what this Hebrews passage is teaching about what God does in our life. But really, the word there for discipline is is, is much richer than our English word allows for. It means that a parent 
in discipline is responsible for the entire environment of the child so that the, he or she, the child, gets what they need in that moment to grow, to mature, to flourish, to, to, to be the best they can be. We use the word discipline because um, nurture alone doesn't get to the full meaning. Because you might think, well, nurture, okay, that's part of it. But we use the word discipline because just nurture, it doesn't get to it. What Hebrews is saying here, it's nurture, discipline is, but with consequences too. It's nurture with consequences. So discipline then is a, it's a love-based consequence that's concerned for the overall well-being of the child and their growth and their flourishing. And if you don't have it, we all know children who grow up without any consequences. What are they headed for? Well, looking like one of these guys, I guess. They, they all, we, they're headed for a bad life if it's not appropriate and healthy and biblical discipline. Now, the way most of us at times are tempted to parent is by punishment, retribution, payback. We're tempted to do that, which is not discipline, actually. Here's how it looks. I've reached this level of anger or frustration, and, 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 and watch out. Here it comes. Or maybe you make them cry because they irritated you or frustrated you or hurt you in some way. We have all, every one of us, struggled with this in our parenting. And maybe in your grandparenting, too. There really is a big difference between discipline, as Hebrews describes it, and is going on in Genesis, and retribution, punishment, payback. There's a big difference between godly discipline and punishment, payback, which sometimes is where what we parent out of, don't we? Real discipline brings in just enough unpleasantness to change the child, not pay them back for what they've done to you. That's the difference. And in Hebrews, when he writes this to them, do you know what they're facing when he says, uh, you know, trust the Lord and his discipline, don't, don't, don't grow weary or lose heart? They're facing, in Hebrews, when, he, when the writer writes this, they're facing death and persecution. Can you imagine that? How dare he write that to them? See, we all live in this broken world where we will face brothers who betray us. Poor relationships or, or poor parenting will face these things. Not only that, we also, as we live in a broken world, you and I also have a broken soul as we're born into this world. Things that don't work right inside of us. And in fact, we're, we're, most of us are unaware of our most sinful proclivities or things. We're, we're blind. We've got blind spots to our own sin too. So both of those things, you live in a broken world and you're broken too. We have pride. Maybe for you it's envy. Maybe it's fear or anxiety or selfishness. You have some of those things, and sometimes you can't even see them. And so here's what we see in the Genesis story, in the details, and in our life too. If you are a child of God, God will not only use the brokenness in this world or the world you inhabit, the spheres and people you live around, he'll not only use that brokenness, 
but the brokenness inside of you, he will use it in such a way and bring it into your life like the 10 brothers now. That's what he's doing with them. He'll bring it into your life in such a way it'll form you and shape you and mold you and reveal things to you that you would never see otherwise. It'll snap you out of it. (laughs) The Lord is disciplined. It'll wake you up. It'll shock you back to reality, which is what we're about to see for these brothers. But it will also fix you. It'll mold you. It'll shape you. Well, which is good news for parents because ultimately that means that you can't ultimately mess up your child. Can you do a lot of damage? Yes. Of course, because we shape, we know, we mold, we direct their lives. But if they have the father behind the father, like these 10 do, and Joseph did, if they have the father behind the father, there is nothing in their life he can't use. And that means there's nothing in your life he can't use. It's hard. Discipline hurts. It also means we have to take into account seriously, not with uh, triviality or triteness, Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But here's the thing. A lot of us stop at verse 28. We don't go on, because that's a really good promise. I want that. But what is the good in your life? If I was to ask you, we'd probably define it in a lot of different ways. What is that good? You have to keep reading down to verse 29. Here it is on the screen. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To become conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. So that he would be the first born among many brothers and sisters who look like him, who speak like him, who act like him, who live like him, who love like him, who sacrifice like him. He wants you to look like him. As the Hebrews passage goes on and says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. True, actual holiness too. And what, what, what Paul is saying is that he is making you into something beautiful in all the hard things that come into your life in the discipline, in the brokenness. He's forming you into the image of Jesus. And that is a much greater good than any good you could ever come up with in your mind and imagine on your own that you want God to give you. It's a much greater good. So God, he's entering into the lives of Joseph's brothers here. Back to the story now. By sending them to Egypt by bringing them into contact now with Joseph again after all these years and some really difficult situations. Why? To begin to change them into men of God. To transform them into men of God. We can, we can trivialize Romans 8 sometimes, but think about the bad things that come into your life. There's a lot, isn't there? Some of you are going through some right now that feel excruciating. whether it's health or relational strife or loneliness or feelings of inadequacy or fear or anxiety that's overwhelming you, God is using them for your good to mold you and shape you to look like Jesus. You know when bad things happen, 
I tend to think that God is using them on like a thousand different levels that we'll never even see, that we'll never even understand, like some interwoven tapestry or web that we can't quite understand. But when those things happen, bad things happen to you, we, we tend to look, don't you tend to look outside yourself at what's the cause, what's the reason, let me just make it stop, let me figure it out. We look externally and we go, okay, why is this coming, where is it coming from? You, know, you get on your night goggle vision, you know, where is it, you know, let me just see, where is it coming from? What's happening? To try to figure it out. Let me give you a piece of advice. Don't waste your energy doing that. Because there's a thousand different reasons God lets horrible things come into our life, and we can't have the answers to all of them right now. So what should you do then? When bad things happen, instead of looking outside to blame or the cause or to figure it out and try to rationalize everything, look inside yourself. Not for the answer, but look inside yourself and and say to God, What are you up to inside of me during this trial? What are you working on inside of me right now? What are you trying to reveal and show me and change in me through this moment, through this trial, through this furnace you're taking me through, God? Because these 10 brothers were about to go through it big time. What are you doing in me? That's why knowing the character of God matters. That's why theology matters. Because when the, when the pressure of life comes on, when, when, when the heat of life gets turned up, if you don't see him like a heavenly father, if you don't know his character, you can't trust that good can come from all things in your life. You have to know. I think about when you hear the words from Jesus when he just says, don't be anxious, right? It sounds like a law almost, right? When hard things happen to us, we get anxious, right? Don't be anxious, What if you were to hear that like a tender father saying, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, I'm here. Not don't be anxious, you can do it. No, don't be anxious, I'm your father. I can use things in your life for your good and I will. That's why knowing his character matters. Our story, Joseph's a perfect example. Sold into slavery, by his brothers, betrayed by his boss's wife, thrown into prison. He's forgotten there for years, and it turned him from a spoiled brat into a seriously wise, courageous, and generous man. This is an important point over the next few Sundays, because the next few chapters, these guys are going to go through a lot as we see Joseph interact with his brothers. It was the point, God is becoming for them the father they never had, using a discipline that would transform them to change them by godly discipline that would train them. So how does he do it? What goes on in the details of the encounter? Well, in your life too, when God disciplines you, what usually happens? What is going on? It's our second thing, the way God is moving in the story. God uses Joseph now specifically. He uses Joseph to bring this alternating sun and frost and love and truth into the lives of these brothers to kind of crack them, to to, to break them open with his grace. It's an incredible encounter as you think about the years that have passed and the fact that they think he's probably dead or at the very least uh, a slave somewhere in Egypt and they'll never see him again. 
It's an incredible encounter. So here they come, and unbeknownst to them, they're standing before Joseph now, who they had sold into slavery. But verse 7 says this, Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. So the, the, the writer tells us he's rough with them. He, he kind of roughs them up a little bit, messes around with them, keeps his identity secret and kind of plays the, the, the bad cop in that moment. What are you doing here? You spies, you dishonest men. Why are you here? What are you doing? I don't trust you. He roughs them up, calls them spies, calls them dishonest, and then tests them by saying, well, bring that other brother here, which, remember, is Joseph's biological brother, Benjamin. And then he holds Simeon hostage. He's rough with them. And then he goes so far as to put the money in their sacks when they return home. You might look at all this in the encounter and say, well, that's cruel. He's just abusing his power to get revenge on these guys. Maybe it is a, sh a West Western shootout. Just getting revenge. Why doesn't he just say, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. All these years, I forgive you. I, ha I have all the food you need. Bring dad. Let's celebrate. Why doesn't he do that? There's a fantastic quote by Derek Kidner. And it's the basis for this second point. You'll see the language even in it. He's not just getting revenge. And he's not just forgiving. Here's what Kidner said, and I, I just love it. He said, at first sight, the rough handling, which now dominates the scene all the way to the end of chapter 44, it has the look of vengefulness. Nothing could be more natural, but nothing could be further from the truth. Behind the harsh pose, that's Joseph's pose, there was a warm affection. We see it. He's weeping all the time. And after the ordeal, an overwhelming kindness. Even the threats, though, were tempered with mercy. And the shocks that were administered took the form of embarrassments rather than blows. A vindictive Joseph could have dismayed his brothers with worthless sackloads, just sending him home with nothing. His enigmatic gifts were a kinder and more searching test. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth, the change, the transformation of the quite new attitudes in the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. Sun and frost, truth and love. Why is Joseph doing all of this? He wants to see if they've changed first, but he wants to be part of the change process in their lives if they haven't. It's, it's a wonderful image. The alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. Or for us in Oregon, it's sun, I'm saying sun and rain. This change. But in reality, what happens when you pour cold water in a hot glass over and over again? What happens? It breaks. It ultimately breaks. It, it shatters. Alternating sun and frost or love and truth. Think of Joseph. Up and down. Up and down. Sun and frost. Pit and pinnacle. Prison to, 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 to pinnacle. What did it do to him? It softened him. It softened him. Or think of truth and love together. You just give somebody truth alone, what does it do to them? It actually usually hardens them. If it's all truth, all truth, all truth, no love. 
But when you mix it with love, it softens and transforms them. Well, here with his brothers, he's, he's, he's convicting them. He's, he's humbling them, yet encouraging them. And, and this is how Jacob screwed up his family. He didn't give both to the kids. Joseph was all sunshine and love, no boundaries, did what he wanted, gave him all this money, and he ends up standing on the kitchen table saying, you'll all bow down to me. It was all one way. The other brothers, probably all frost, rules, expectations. You're not Joseph. You're definitely not Joseph. Joseph gives them both. Sun and frost, truth and love. Yeah, he's sunny. He doesn't pay them back, does he? He doesn't make them slaves forever. He could have. What else does he do? He mentions God to them. He didn't have to do that. He said, I I fear God. Do this and live for I fear God. He gives them food and he sends all but one home with food when he first said he was going to keep all but one. It's sun. But if it was too sunny, if he just would have forgiven them all at once, what would have happened? They never would have changed. They would never have changed. Great, this is done with. Let's move on, Joseph. We're moving here. We're packing up our bags. We'll bring the RVs and everything else. And we're going to get here and make a new life. They wouldn't have changed if he just said, all sunshine. And if he just went for justice, just frost, just truth, ah, it's you. Off with your heads or to prison forever. I'll do with you exactly what you did to me. Do you think that would have changed him either? No way. No way. But by going back and forth, by alternating with them, truth and love and sun and frost, over the next few chapters, we're going to see immense change in them. So much so that Judah, the one who at first was saying, let's kill Joseph. He was the primary voice, let's kill Joseph at the beginning of the story. We'll exchange his life for Benjamin's. That's a lot of change in that man. See, he doesn't just quickly forgive or send them to prison because he loves them. And this is how God is with you. Alternating. Think about the gospel. Such immense sunshine. You're saved by grace alone because of what someone else has done, Jesus Christ. You're saved by his righteousness, his death. That's a lot of sunny, isn't it? That's a lot of sunshine. What does that mean? I can just continue then to live as I want and I'm saved by grace and no, 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 no. In the gospel, God loves you enough to save you by his free grace, really sunny, and Christ's merit, but he also loves you enough to not let you stay the way you are. To not stay the way you've always been. To transform you. In the gospel, God changes you too. He uses the brokenness of your own life and the world to transform you by sun and frost and break you open more and more to his grace. That's what he uses the troubles in life for, the brokenness in your life. It's because he loves you that he comes after you. I know a lot of us are going through a lot of stuff in this room right now. I know that. I know it. 
but I also know we have a loving, tender Father who someday we will look back at those things and say, oh, those light momentary afflictions, they were worth it because I'm like Jesus and he's like me and now I see him face to face. I would go through that again. It doesn't feel like that always in the middle though, does it? But those are the moments we need to go to the character of God and go to the gospel to see, yeah, it's sun and frost because that's what changes you. That's what breaks you open to God's grace. So we see here, that's what Joseph and his brothers are meant to show us. It's a picture of how grace and sanctification and God's work and change through trials in your life, how it happens. But to what end? To what end for the brothers and to what end for us? Let's take a look at the third final today. God's fatherly love, he's bringing them a sorrow and a guilt that he will turn to joy. I think, I think it's, it's clear, as Kidner said in that quote I read, that the brothers do begin to change. They're beginning to change as God uses the hard things of this situation. Now remember, they're foreigners in a land with no power now. In fact, Joseph's even using a translator with them. They don't even, as the text says, they don't even, they're not even speaking the same language as this guy, and they stand before him, the man that holds all the keys, all the power. They're running out of food at home. They're probably away from their wives and children. Think about this situation. This is real struggle and trial. But they begin to change. Begins in verse 13, where when discussing their brothers, they mention that one is no more. Did you see that in there? They didn't have to say that. This man, for all they know, has no idea. But they say, yeah, there's one who's no more. It shows that their sin is on their mind. It's front and center again as they head into the land where they sold him to. Verse 21, we really see their sorrow and guilt begin to emerge. They said to one another, Ah, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us from that pit and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben chimes in. See, I told you we shouldn't have done it in verse 22. Do you see them begin to crack and open as God is using now this frosty situation mixed in with a little bit of grace and sun to, to, to bring to surface in mind the guilt and shame and sorrow they have? And then when they find the money in one brother's bag in verse 28, they say to another, what is this that God has done to us? You see it, don't you? They're beginning to change what God has done to us. God was beginning to show them their guilt. He was beginning to bring back something they probably had suppressed for many years to bring it to the surface. Which without doing, how would they ever become the foundation of the covenant family for all God's people in the world? He had to do this. With this secret in their closet, if he just left it there and didn't make, uh, bring them to a reckoning with it? Imagine, they, 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 they had to hold on to that truth for years with Jacob. For years. They all knew it. They all knew it, but Jacob didn't. They all held on to it, but Jacob didn't. Can you imagine the guilt and sorrow? And this is the second time now they've left a brother behind and come home with money after abandoning another brother. Can you imagine what they're feeling? 
But the joy will come. The joy will come. When not only Joseph sees their transformation complete, but the brothers are given insight into what God is doing when Joseph says to them, you, don't be afraid. In verse 50, it says this, or chapter 50 of 19 and 20, he says, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to keep many people alive, so therefore, do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What could be more of a blessing? I mean, this is verses encapsulated, and we'll get into them in more detail later. But what could be more of a blessing? It's still called evil. So they see their need of the forgiveness of God. They're given truth. They're given frost, and they're shown that and granted that. But they're also graciously shown in these words of Joseph the historical facts of how God had used it for good in the rise of their brother and the transformation of his character to be a blessing to the world and now a blessing to their family and a salvation for their family. And then giving them assurance, don't be afraid. God is using this. Can you let that be a refrain? Don't be afraid. God is using this. I need those words today. Don't be afraid. God is using this. He's using it for us, for you, for I to change us. Because he's a father. He's the father they never had. He's the father maybe you never knew. He's the father you always wished you had. That's who he is. He's going to turn their sorrow and guilt into joy. And isn't the cross the only place we can find that? Isn't the feet of Jesus at the cross the only place we can find that? Much of our trials in life reveal to us. What do they do? They reveal to us the indwelling sin we still have. Joseph's brothers are feeling the full weight of it. And without the cross, what would it be? It'd be all frost. It'd be all truth. It'd be all justice. It'd be no forgiveness without the cross. And yeah, we'd be self-aware of our guilt, yes, but you'd be condemned forever because of it. And full of sorrow and full of anguish, and your sorrow and your guilt could never be turned to joy. Only in Jesus can we have the freedom to have any depth of sin revealed to us or about us and still find joy. Because it's forgiven in him. When you see it, it sends you to him. When he reveals it to you in the trials of life, the cross shines even much more beautiful. It's forgiven in him. Justice, the frost, it falls on him. All truth, all justice, all frost, it fell on him so you can be freely forgiven. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation at all. Nothing stands over your head if you're one of Christ's. Not one thing for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the gospel is the ultimate sun and frost. 
the ultimate sun and frost that will break you open to God. All the other messages of the world, all the other religions of the world, all the other self-helps of the world say, live a good life, follow this pattern, follow these rules, and God will be pleased with you and give you heaven. If that's the way you live, that doesn't change you, that doesn't soften you, that only hardens you and makes you superior, makes you Joseph on the table. You'll all bow down to me. Because to know if you're good enough, you always have to compare to others to know. If that's the way we're called to live, and that's the rest, the 99% of the world, that's the messages. Live this way, you'll find fulfillment. Live this way, you'll be successful. Live this way, you'll have hope. Follow these rules, God will love you. And if you fail, you better believe it'll break your spirit. It won't, but not break you open to God. The gospel, sun and frost. Sun and frost. Or should I say frost and sun? Frost, you're more sinful than you actually even know. You've got blind spots you can't even, you've got blind spots on top of your blind spots. But also more love than you could ever dare imagine or hope. It's a lot of sun and frost. And then so loved that he won't leave you as you are, but he will change you and make you and mold you and shape you into the beautiful creature he always meant you to be. Let's close just a couple of follow-up application points. So first, when you go through the trials of life, which some of you are right now, what actually feels like it's breaking you down, destroying you, weakening you, will ultimately strengthen you. It doesn't feel like that in the middle of it. I was reading a pastor this week that used this example of this. He said, imagine you went to the gym and you were doing a bench press there. And with every bench press, you, you felt yourself getting stronger. Put on another plate. Yeah. Put on another plate. Yeah. Put on another plate. Every push, you felt yourself getting stronger. Is that the way it works? No. <laughs> with every push, you're like, where's my spotter? Uh, you know, you're getting weaker, actually. You're getting weaker. You walk out of the gym, what's happened? Your arms are like this. You're kind of getting in the car, you know, trying to drive away. You're weaker, actually. You feel totally done in. So when suffering comes your way, don't give up. Stick with it. Hang on to the cross. Because what is making you feel weaker in that moment will actually make you stronger in the long run. It's really hard, isn't it? It's really hard. At the weakest moment, you want to give up. You want to give in. Don't do it. It's actually going to make you stronger. Here's a second. When these troubles come, we already said this, but I want to repeat it. Don't look outside yourself, unless it's to Jesus. But in those tr struggles... Don't try to look and say, well, why is this happening? Why is this happening? What's this happening? What can I manipulate? What can I do? What can I change? What can I tweak just a little bit to make this suffering go away? Don't waste your energy on that. Look inside yourself to see what God is doing. Don't waste your energy. Struggling usually what it's doing, revealing to us our idols. 
He's taking struggles of life and he's rattling something in your life that you've put more hope in, more joy in, and more confidence in than him. And he's pulling the rug out from under that. Sometimes good things actually, but all temporal things that anything in life could come after and rip away from you. You have to release those things and when you release those things, grab onto God when suffering shakes and takes away one of your idols. And the third and final, even the hard things of life will turn out for your good. Nothing can derail God's plan for your life. That Hebrews passage finishes, finishes in, or in three, chapter three. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but actually painful, right? I can probably get an amen to that, right? Yet to those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And when you doubt these things, look to the life of Joseph and his brothers. And ultimately look to the true and better Joseph. Look to Jesus who suffered these things so that your sorrow and guilt could be turned to joy. Pray with me. Jesus, your discipline is hard. Your discipline is painful, as the writer of Hebrews says. But God, you've given us stories like the life of Joseph so we can see you using sun and frost and truth and love mixed into people's lives to break them open to you, to the reality of their sin and to the need of a savior. And so Jesus, today, I don't know what each of us is going through in this room, but I know many of us are in the middle of a trial or in the middle of your discipline. And if not, it, just wait. It's gonna, it comes to all of us. And when we find ourselves in the middle of it, Jesus, let us hear with refrain over and over again, fear not. This is for your good. Fear not. I am with you. Christ's name, amen.